Blair. We will take hits at Preston City Bible Church for giving all glory to Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for our sins and none of our work for saving us from our sins whatsoever. The unfortunate translation of metanoeo, to repent, as the English, but the unfortunate translation of that word for change of mind in the Greek into a word for penitence or suffering or penalty in Latin has given us this unfortunate theological concept of repentance. And so there's a huge problem in the body of Christ. For 2,000 years, there's been a confusion about what we do about our sins to the point that people feel like they need to agonize and suffer for their sins when only Jesus Christ's suffering for your sins can save you. So when we find something in the hymnody that, uh, that is a little bit out of whack, there's a little bit of a theological chiropractic adjustment, uh, we'll make that adjustment and give all glory and praise to the Lord Jesus without apology, but certainly with explanation. We've assembled for fellowship with God and his word. It's such a privilege to do this. And I fear it is probably becoming a rare privilege. There will be times in our near future, perhaps, where you look back on a night like tonight and say, we don't know what we had. We don't, we, we just had no idea what blessings and privileges we had to open the scriptures without any fear of reprisal or any kind of, uh, any kind of government overstep or overreach that understand 80, 87,000 new government um, soldiers are being recruited to, um, to police the local population, the, the internal population of our country. Of course, not a standing army. It's not military. It's a civilian force working for the tax department. But uh, for what enforcement will this be? We'll find out. In China, the, the news is that they're getting ready to, um, to re-launch. Uh, we heard from missionaries in uh, and, and we were up in camp in Maine uh, that know what's going on in the church in, in China, the state-sponsored church. They're about to, um, to relaunch the Bible for the people of China to, to give the new approved Chinese Communist Party, approved translation or version of the Bible, which will have uh, Jesus as a sinner and, um, and uh, point those who read it away from victory in Jesus through faith alone in Jesus Christ as Savior um, which is an illegal message uh, in China to preach to people at least under the age of 21, and then it's up to interpretation uh, in the state-sponsored or sanctioned church uh, if it's allowed to preach to people that are over the age of 21. And uh, that's, um, that's going on in the world in which we live, and it shouldn't be a surprise to us. And I can show you ways in which our culture and the, the, the new morality of our time uh, we're not very far from that kind of move as a people either, and I don't tell you that to scare you. I, I say that to, um, to, uh, to raise the stakes in our hearts of what we value. You've assembled tonight to fellowship in God's word. What a magnificent privilege he's provided for us. So let's thank him for it. I'll give you a moment for silent prayer if you need to confess any sins. It'd be a good time to do that, and then we'll open in prayer. Father, in the opening of your word tonight, we open our hearts to know you, and we ask that your spirit would train us, he would equip us, that we would have our consciences calibrated, not by the pastor's rhetorical flair, of which there is very little, not by the theological musings and reasonings that we might enjoy tonight, but through what you've actually said, through the prophet Isaiah and the prophets who wrote Chronicles and Kings. Father, we want our spiritual lives to be really lives. We want to really live in the light of your truth with your perspective about the world around us. And it is so complicated. And the messaging from your enemy is so pervasive and we miss it. We don't even have any idea sometimes how we've absorbed it into ourselves. But tonight as we look at the, the genuine article, I ask that you train us 
Make us capable of spotting the counterfeit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask if you'll turn, please, to 2 Kings chapter 18. Nope, check that. I'm sorry. Check that. Isaiah 37. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 37. And, of course, uh, that lines up about right there in my Bible, about halfway, a little more than half. Isaiah chapter 37. We're learning uh, about God's miraculous deliverance of the southern kingdom of Judah in the Sennacherib invasion in 701 B.C., in which Hezekiah, having led a national repentance, was able to invoke God's grace and mercy on the southern kingdom and avert the inevitable, seemingly inevitable disaster that was coming, uh, that was weighing down on them in that invasion by the Assyrians. And it's a great story. It makes for a fantastic Sunday school lesson. And it is the story that we've read so many times of the impossible odds. Uh, as far as human uh, considerations go, we can count numbers of soldiers and, and horses and say, well, there's no way that Hezekiah could survive this. Well, there was a way. God broke in. God answered prayer. God worked a miracle. And uh, it's an, it turns out it's an angelic miracle. And... Um, the, it's very interesting. This happened in Isaiah's lifetime. Isaiah is the prophet that the king would resort to. And we have this, this relationship between the kings and the prophets throughout the monarchies in Israel. Samuel the prophet was the last judge. The way we understand the judges, Moses was the first, Samuel was the last. He wasn't the last prophet, but he was the last judge who had an executive rulership function. And the people asked God for a king like the Gentiles had, and they got Saul and Samuel, God's prophet, was the one who anointed, as it were, his successor, the executive that would take over and rule as the Gentiles did, and selfishly, and uh, making bureaucracy, and taxing the people, and all the things that Samuel said in 1 Samuel 8. But there was always a close relationship thereafter with the kings of Israel and the prophets. That was God's design, and, this, and Samuel was the prophet with King David. But not for long, because then it was, he anointed David when David was a young man. And in most of David's ministry, apparently, it was um, Nathan and Gad the seer. And you had these prophets associated with this ministry where the king, human king, is really a representation of the real king, Yahweh, the creator, the God of Israel. And that's what God wanted, and he even incorporated that into this law before there were ever kings, that there would be expectations for how the kings would live. For example, they would make a copy of Deuteronomy. So they would be able to read and write, and they would have read and written the word of God so they would know the suzerain-vassal treaty relationship responsibilities that the king had to the great king. And so that this was set up. It was inherent in the Mosaic Law Code. It's how God wanted them to function. And the tragedy of the story of the, of the people of Israel and their monarchies is that they generally didn't. They didn't follow what God had said. Even though he had written it in stone, even though he had uh, said it in their hearing from the mountain in Exodus chapter 20, even though uh, they then had the prophets write down, had Moses write down all of God's counsel and what we have, the, the Pentateuch, and then the prophets that they came after, even though they had written revelation from God and prophets, they didn't listen. And the story before us in Isaiah 36 and 37 that shows up in 2 Kings 18, 19, that's in 2 Chronicles 29 through, 20, through 32, that's the chunk, that's the Hezekiah portion of the Old Testament. And the story before us, it's what would have happened in a general national decline where the nation corrected, they had a revival. They had a, they had a reformation. They went back to their original treaty with God, their covenant relationship, and God did what he said he would do. He delivered them. And it's a beautiful uh, story um, because it's, it's on par with the Red Sea deliverance in, in, Numbers, or sorry, in Exodus 14 and 15 with uh, David, uh, the, the shepherd of Israel, 
anointed but not yet king who's functioning as the shepherd to deliver the people in 1 Samuel 17 from the giant. Of, um, it's in that same vein of God's wonderful works. And this is where the story uh, breaks in and we, we meet Isaiah and it's rare. There's not a lot of narrative in the Bible about Isaiah, son of Amos, but you have it here. So in chapter 37, we've had the Rabshaka outside the walls of Jerusalem speak to the nobles and then to the people with a message basically don't believe Yahweh and don't believe Hezekiah. And in verse 21 of chapter 37, but they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. You're not going to be able to stand against the Assyrians. Just surrender and come out, and we are going to resettle you and take over and make this one of the many uh, places that Assyria now has in its empire. So chapter 37, Hezekiah brings the prophet Isaiah into the story. When King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes. This is Isaiah chapter 37 and verse 1. He tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. Now, if you've been reading in your history, you know that that's a very important thing to say, that Hezekiah entered the house of the Lord, the temple. Hezekiah is the king most noted for um, uh, reform back to the worship of God in the temple. He's the, he's the king that after generations cleansed the temple and reestablished worship of Yahweh. And you can read about that in 2 Chronicles 29 and 30. So he went into the, to the house of the Lord and he sent Eliakim. What's he doing there? He's praying. He's going there to pray. And while he's busy praying... He sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth to Isaiah, the prophet, son of Amos. We have the word of God that has been recorded, and we're living it out. We're seeking to obey it in this order of priesthood and Levites and, and, and the way the king's office functions. But we need a word directly from God on the circumstance. We need to know what God is going to do. What does God want from us? So they said to Isaiah, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection, for children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. If you think, that, that is a very poetic thing, disastrous thing to describe. Children have, it's time to deliver, but there's no strength. That's a big uh-oh. That's a, that's a nightmare. That's an unthinkable cal- calamity, the way they've described that. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh. Remember, Rabshakeh, the chief cupbearer. That's what that means. The chief wine taster or the prime minister of the, uh, the kingdom of Syria. He will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. Okay. We're going to ask the prophet to just pray, just intercede, because we're assuming that God knows what Rob Shaka has said. Very helpful. God says to Moses, as Moses sees the army coming, he tells Israel, stand fast and watch the deliverance of the Lord. The next words in the story in Exodus 14 is God speaking to Moses. Why are you calling out to me? Go take your stand and, and spread your staff over the water. That's in your hand. Go spread your staff. Go hold your staff over the water. God is saying, let's, let's go. I'm, I'm with you, and you don't need to be afraid. Even Moses, after telling Israel not to be afraid, says, why, Moses, are you crying out to me? Let's go. David, when he is facing the giant, has, wonderful, has a wonderful sermon. I'm thankful that it was written down so that we can benefit from it because Goliath didn't, and he lost his head. Some of the last words that Goliath ever heard were, the battle is the Lord's, and I come in the name of the living God. And this is the way these people were thinking, I believe because of the prior reforms Hezekiah had brought. He had said, this is the kingdom of God, representing God on earth. We're Israel. We are 
under Yahweh and we have a relationship with him. We have a covenant responsibility and we serve him and him alone. And so his subordinates are approaching and saying, has God heard what he said? They're making it theological. It is so easy for us to see geopolitical realities and not be theological about them. In fact, you can't see the theological. All you can see is the tanks. All you can see is the reports, the news reports. You don't know exactly in terms of details what God is specifically doing. But that same impulse that Hezekiah's people had, that Hezekiah had to say, what does God think about this? That's exactly, that's exactly where we need to go in times of trouble. We need to think there is a living God, and he has spoken to the situation in general terms, and I need to bring these things to mind, and therefore I can have hope. What things has God said in general about my trial, my trouble, my situation? Well, one thing he said in James is that it's to my good that I undergo various trials because it brings about character that God's developing in me. There's one answer to why I'm suffering. Another is that whatever the course this circumstance takes, it's to my good because God promised that in Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul said, and we know that God is working all things together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose, for us. And so it's God working things together for our good, and we know that this will turn out for our good. And these are general statements God has made that you can apply to your specific circumstance. But notice the theological impulse that the people take. They say, God has heard what Rob Shaka said. Maybe God will respond, therefore offer a prayer for the remnant that is left as their request. This will not be the way your culture responds to the crisis. There were times in 1776, a year of failure and loss after failure and loss, Retreat after defeat after retreat after defeat for George Washington. The only win, as far as I recall, of 1776, the only notable win is on Christmas Eve when they crossed the Trenton and, um, and took down uh, the, the Hessians, whatever the fort was, I, for, I forget. Oh, no, it's very presidential of me. You know the thing. Anyway, um, the, the Christmas raid in 1776, right before the end of the year, Washington lost and lost and lost. The tone of his encouragement to the people was, beseech Almighty God for his forgiveness and, and uh, his, his seeking our good and, and delivering us from our enemies. This was the tone of the people. You're not going to see this as your culture. Your leaders aren't going to say these things today. It's a different type of culture. Well, our, our citizenship is in heaven. Our identity is not this nation, this culture. It really isn't our identity and we need to embrace our heavenly citizenship, not just because the culture has turned, but even in, in star-spangly times. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so uh, that theological impulse to say, what does God think about it, means that you have to be in the Word. It means you have to be in the Word. You can't go by your circumstance and say, well, I'm suffering, so that means God doesn't love me. I'm hurting, so God doesn't have good things for me. Rob Shaka is saying these things. They hurt my feelings, so obviously God is down on me. You can't do that. You have to go by what God's word says. Why is Rob Shaka, why is uh, Sennacherib uh, laying siege to Jerusalem? Why are they doing this? Because this is the consequence, military invasion, prophesied by Moses in Leviticus 26, for rebellion against God. You're going to lose your country and we're gonna, you're going to go be exiles and work for the idolaters as slaves if you go into idolatry. That was God's promise to them. And this is the military invasion that God had promised, one of many. And so finally, they're about to get, the tooth is finally going to get pulled. Jerusalem's finally going to fall. And there's theology here. God told us why this is happening. So that, that's not in question in their case. Hey, you don't know why, uh, whatever the circumstance may be that's happening to you. One thing you can't conclude is that God has changed, that God is not love, that God doesn't love you, that God isn't looking for your best, that God isn't working these things together for good for you unless you can say, I don't really love him, and therefore I know I'm not called according to his purpose in Romans 8.28. Are you one of those that love God and are called according to his purpose? Or like in the church in Ephesus in Revelation 3, have you lost your first love? 
It is so easy to find things that we're interested in and choose not to be interested in the things of God. The horror of the church in Ephesus in Revelation 3 is that they're very into theology and very not in love with God. They're not loving God. How can you be so focused on right practice and right doctrine and right theology and yet not love God? How can that be possible? Well, it is possible. It is a common pitfall for those that are serious students of God's word. Always learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth to borrow a phrase from the scriptures out of context. It's very easy to say, oh, this satisfies my curiosity. It was nice to have heard this and move on. But the question is, do you love God? If you can say you love God, then you can apply Romans 8.28's promise to yourself and say, yes, even this, God is working together for good. Which means, in the box of your experience, it's a little, it's a box. Everybody got my three-dimensional box here? I'm miming for you. That's because I love you. I'll do it. I'm miming a box. This is the circumstance that you're in. It's the hardship. It's you. It's the other person. It's the thing. It's the bad things that are happening in that box. And for you, while you're in that moment inside that box, that's all there is. It's the whole world. It's everything. Rob Shaka is going to mow us down. They're going to they're gonna lay siege to us. We're all going to be starving to death. And get all, half of us are going to die of disease. And then we're going to come out and we're going to be enslaved in this little box. But you know from my portrayal up here, everybody look, this little box of your problem, that is not all that there is. This is a small picture of what's going on. Let's break the box open. There's the universe and beyond the universe, the God who controls the universe. And when you do that, when you let that problem take its rightful place, it's no smaller than it was. It's just my perspective is bigger. God is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And here's what you have to do. You have to stop pretending that all you know is what's in this box of your experience and circumstances. And you need to say, wait a second, God, who is, whether I know it or not, has spoken, whether I believe it or not, whether I'm listening to it or not, and those things that he's spoken are for my good, for my stability, for my knowledge for my application into this circumstance. So God's word comes from outside that circumstance into my life inside the circumstance, and now I'm stabilized. And by God's design, that's the only way you get stabilized. You can't learn from the situation, well, what is Rob Shaka's words? What can I get from his words that tell me that God loves me? Nothing. Rob Shaka just said, Yahweh is the same as Chemosh. He's the same as Molech. He's the same as Baal. He's Zeus. It's just another local deity, and we're going to roll over him too. Rob Shaka has no truth for you, so you can't look at him. So what about the other people that are all crying and afraid and worried and crying over their tent posts, uh, leaning on their tent posts at, the, at Ephes Damim, crying over Goliath, how the Philistines are going to whip us? You can't look around you and say, well, how do we know God loves us and has us? Well, we're scared and we're worried and we're scared and worried. You can't look around you and find this. You have to look at God and what he said. You have to go back to his word. So the appeal, my appeal, beloved body of Christ believers, is that you would go back to God's word like they're doing here. They're going to Isaiah. They want a word from God. And they're opening God's word, as it were, Isaiah is a walking Bible in his day. They're going to hear from God who's going to speak from outside the box into the situation. He's going to blow the situation apart, it turns out. So what do we hear from God's word, which changes everything? So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. This is chapter 37, verse 6. Isaiah said to them, thus you shall say to your master, thus says Yahweh. I recently saw a posting uh, out, on there, out there on the float, float around media. My dad's day, it would have been a Xeroxed uh, sheet of a joke or something that was being passed around the office. That's now called, that's the internet. That's what the internet's for, I guess. Uh, <coughs> that Yahweh is, um, is actually not the right vowels, that the vowels are Yoa because that's what, how babies breathe or something. Um, <laughs> And I got to tell you that um, whatever vowels you give it, you've got to have vowels to pronounce any name. 
And it wasn't originally just for letters. There, there's a name that has vowels, and the one who invented vowels is God. Vowel comes from vocalis. It's the Latin, which means voice. And the vowels or letters are the voices of the words. You can't have a word without vowels. The letters PhD, do you know what that stands for? FD. Um, you know, it, it means nothing without all the vowels that make up Doctor of Philosophy. But I'm just saying, um, Yahweh is the best you're going to do with that name. And if you get beyond that, if you find some mystical answer for why we don't know the vowels or anything, any mysticism about names, just know that the Internet is alive and well with some satanic deception from Hebraica. The Hebraica on YouTube is basically a big minefield of, of disaster. So I, my challenge as a Hebrew instructor, adjunct professor for Chafer, and I study Hebrew constantly, is, um, is stick with the known sources. Someone said, watch out. Watch out, because the, the Internet's full of garbage. But uh, the best we're going to do with the sacred tetragrammaton, yod heh vav heh would be Yahweh. And this is what Yahweh said. Do not be afraid because of the words that you've heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria has, have blasphemed me. All right, can someone help me in verse 6 with our finger in the text? You're like, well, that's not the Bible. We don't have the Bible in the text. It's in your lap. In uh, Isaiah chapter 37, verse 6, is there a word of encouragement is there a promise or is there a command? In verse 6, do we have a command? What is the command? Do not be afraid. Now, understand, you and I immediately switch into some, some, some bizarre postmodern Wittgensteinian language games thing where we just take that as someone trying to say they're there, like speech act theory, they call it. The reason God says that is because he's trying to calm you. He's patting your hand. He's saying they're there. When Jesus meets the disciples walking on the water, he says, do not be afraid. It is I, fear not. Take courage. It is I, do not be afraid. It's, it's a sandwich. Take courage. New information. It's me. Do not fear. If we're careful with the grammar, which God invented, using language which God makes effective and efficient for actual communication, it's a miracle every time. If we're careful with grammar, which I try to be, we're going to observe that God makes this instruction all through the Bible. Do not fear. Don't fear what Rob Shock has said. He says it in Matthew 14 on the water. He says it. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, answering the question, why do we fight and wars for your family, for all the people in your life and your stuff, but mainly for the, all the people in your life and your stuff. That's Nehemiah 4.14. Do not fear them, but remember God and fight. It's all through the scriptures. Do not be afraid. We're told don't be worrying about anything, but in all things with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God and the peace that passes all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus in Philippians 4, 6. Before Paul issues a promise of guarding our hearts in the peace of God, he issues an instruction, a command, uh, don't be afraid, don't be worried. This is the nature of the case. I believe that the fear of the Lord in Proverbs puts fear in a special category of, of a capacity God gave us to respond to him. And when we offer that capacity of awe and terror at what might happen if the bad thing happens, like you find, fall afoul of an omnipotent, infinite creator, when you take that capacity for awe and you apply it to something that isn't God, it's illicit. Don't be afraid of them. And so... On my little excursus on fear, Jesus said, don't fear man who can destroy only your body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The fear of the Lord is not simply a, a tame respect, right? This is the fear of Yahweh. This is, C.S. Lewis is the only person in literature that I know of who've captured this where even a child could understand it. Is Aslan a tame lion? He's not a tame lion. 
but he's good. And so, do not be afraid is the beginning instruction. And then God gives them the reason not to be afraid. Behold, I'll put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. That sounds like a promise. Okay, thank you, God. We can rest. Okay. Now that's a promise God makes, and now history is going to bear out over time whether actually what God said happens is going to happen. That's called predictive prophecy. God said it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. So you trust me. Don't be afraid of them. Here's what's going to happen. And then you can measure whether God does what he said by the action of history and see if he does it. And that's, that's why we believe in future Israel. That's why we believe what we do about Bible prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet, that we think it's going to happen like God said. So verse 8, then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he, um, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. So Rabshakeh heard that the king was, who was in a nearby city, laying siege of that, had stopped and had moved to Libna. When Rabshakeh heard them say concerning Terhaka, king of Cush, Cush is Ethiopia, so Terhaka is another king in an up-and-coming uh, uh, empire. He has come out to fight against you, and when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall say, Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. This isn't over. We're leaving, just like God said. Part A of the, of the prophecy was they're going to hear a rumor and go back to their own land. So just because part A has happened, don't you trust him. <laughs> so terror has a way of playing on our fears. That's what terrorists do. They want you to be unstable and unsettled. And I challenge you that the first person to use the human capacity for uncertainty this way is Satan in Genesis 3, has God indeed said. And then he refutes God, you will not die. This unsettling way of communication, this is the terrorist tool. And that's what Rub Shaka says, don't you trust in God. Don't let you let your God deceive you. Uh, obviously, through some sort of intelligence, he has heard that God had an oracle through Isaiah the prophet. See, time elapses through this, and we don't know what the, the time sequence is, but very clearly the way the story is presented, Rob Shaka knows that there's been this prophecy and that they are standing fast because they've heard from their, their God. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations, which my fathers have destroyed, deliver them, even Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the sons of, the, of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sarvavim, and uh, Hena and Eva, where are all these places that we've steamrolled, right? Their gods had little oracles from their priests, you know, their, their made-up stuff, and, and they were reading chicken bones or whatever and, and getting prophecies from various ways. Uh, pharmakeia, the word often translated sorcery or witchcraft in the old English translations, apparently is a drug-induced stupor in which people would, um, in various oracles, get uh, get what the Greeks talk about in Delphi. They, the, these people were high on various drugs, and then they would have messages from the gods or from beyond. And, and so we've got all these other places that have their gods and their messages too, and we rolled over them. So I'm bringing you science and history against all this religion and um, and and uh, superstition, and you know, read 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 the bones all you want, but the science says we're going to win because we've got a bigger army and we've beaten everyone else. So be a good scientist, and you can just just use some empiricism. We beat all these other countries, and you're in no better shape than they are. We're going to beat you too. So he's still bringing that message. It's very interesting the the intersection of God's revelation with scientific empirical observation. Who are you going to believe? I'll go with God's revelation for 500, Alex. So what do you do when they say, don't trust in the God who told you 
that we're not going to destroy you. What do you do? Well, you can believe the enemy. You can listen to him and let him inform you of how things are. And you can adopt a false metaphysic. Or you can go to the God who is, who has already spoken to you, and you can talk to him about it. And when God speaks to you, that's called revelation. And we have it in the Word of God, in the Bible, as they went to Isaiah, the prophet, and heard God's message to them. Direct revelation from God. That's God talking to you. And we have that in our Bible. And when you talk to God, we call that prayer. So that's what Hezekiah does. Now, I want you to notice the way this started tonight, they had the affront of Rob Shaka's message. And what they did with it was they put it in theological terms and they went to see what did God say about it. They heard God's word about it. And now they've got another message that is directly contradicting God's message. In fact, saying God is lying to you. It's Genesis 3. It's Satan in the garden. It's the serpent talking to the woman in the garden. It's the same idea. And if you take the, if you peel off the, all the many clothes on the paper dolls of the various arguments out there against uh, God's word, you're going to find the same thing. You can't trust in God. Don't let your God deceive God is holding back the goods from you in Genesis 3.5, the diabolical implication, which is behind everything that is contrary to Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead to offer you eternal life so that you can rule with Christ forever and ever in his inevitably coming kingdom. In verse 14 of Isaiah 37, then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. So Rob Shaka's message was written down, and so now he has something to take to his daddy and say, this is tearing me down. This is hurting me. This is, this is what they're saying. God, do you see what they're saying? He sees what they're saying. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. That's Yahweh Sabaoth. That's the Lord of the armies, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Oh, this is one of the great prayers in all of world history. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words of Sennacherib who sent them to reproach you. Just like David said, this uncircumcised Philistine is reproaching Yahweh. These people think of these things in theological terms. It's not that our football teams are opposing each other and they're talking trash about our defensive coordinator. And it's not about those matters. To Israel, it's about God. We represent him. And to you, for a stronger reason, an a fortiori argument, you who are in Christ by the baptism of the Spirit, who belong to the body of Christ, the bride of our Savior, you, for stronger reason, need to think of these things in theological terms. It's about him. I love the language, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see, so that you listen to all the words of Sennacherib who sent them to reproach the living God. Verse 18, truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands, have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the works of men's hands, wood and stone, so they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. That is a very common theme in the prayers of the Bible, is deliver us so that you can be glorified. Ask what you're asking for with the right motivation for the right reason. The reason that Jesus asks to be glorified in John 17, he says, is so that he can then glorify the Father all the more. So asking for deliverance is asking for God for you to defend your own honor, to stand up for your own name, to be magnified among the nations. <clears throat> Perhaps the greatest movie ever made uh, in terms of the European theater of World War II, in my opinion, is, was something done in the early, mid-90s called Saving Private Ryan. You might have seen it. Uh, it's very brutal and realistic, extremely realistic portrayal of combat uh, experience. And it's um, the only thing that's ever uh, kind of captured what 
the soldiers went through in their beachhead at Normandy on June 6th of 1944. And uh, for that reason alone, it's a, to me, it's a treasure. But it's very brutal. It's very difficult. And so um, I, would, uh, I would not recommend it uh, with that warning. But nevertheless, most of you have seen it, so I'll just say um, there's a part in there where there's a little bit of humor. There's always humor in uniform, but it's, it's always, it's always uh, graveyard humor. They, they know that they may be killed. And they've watched their, their friends be killed already. And my grandpa went through this. And some of yours did too. Some of your fathers went through this. There's this one part in this story where the Christian sniper, who's always quoting scripture as he's doing what must be done. He says, they're all complaining because that's what a soldier, a happy soldier is a complaining soldier. And I learned that in the army. Um, if they're not complaining, something's wrong. It's like if your dog's nose isn't cold and wet, something's wrong. Uh, the soldiers aren't complaining, then something else is going on. And they're complaining about this, this crazy mission where they've been asked to go and save this one kid whose, pair, whose brothers have died. Anyway, um, they're griping and, and moaning about it. And uh, the, the leader character, the, um, the squad leader for this outfit, is, uh, is kind of just ignoring it like you're supposed to. And then um, the sniper speaks up and says, this is a waste of government resources. And he said, and then the leader says, listen up, guys, this is how to complain. This is how, you, this is how you complain. He says, well, the way I see it, if you put me up to and including, I think, like a half mile from Hitler with, with my rifle and my scope, I can end the war with one shot. I can just take out Hitler, and then the war is over, and this is done. So me being on this suicide mission, you've got, this is stupid. And then and the commander says, that's the way to argue, guys. You want to argue in terms of the mission when you're wanting to complain. This is the right way to complain. And this is, this is how to pray. The illustration I'm making is that when you want what you think you want, you need to ask yourself a question before you bring that petition to the throne of grace and ask for the sailboat or whatever, right? Most of your prayers aren't going to pass the muster of why are you asking for this? You're asking it, James says, because you want to spend it on your pleasures, you're asking because you want something for you and it's about you and that's a dead end and it's, it's not going to be good for you anyway because it's about you. But the way Jesus prays, glorify me with the glory I had with you from before the world was. When Jesus asked for this, he says, so that I can bring glory to you. And that's what Hezekiah does here. He's asking God to save them. Save us, save our country. But how does he do it? Look at it. Look at, the, look at what the text says. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand. He's asking for him to save them so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. This is the Apostle Paul. Pray for me in 2 Thessalonians when he's listing his prayers. Pray for me. Well, what do we pray for you, Paul? That the gospel may, be, may go forward and be glorified. That we may be protected in our mission. Paul's asking for protection, from, for deliverance from uh, not all men have faith, he says. But the Apostle Paul says, pray for me that the gospel will go forward and be glorified. Please save our country so that the world, all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. That's how to pray. And that's praying on mission. That's God's objectives in mind. And back to the military, that's commander's intent. If you know your father and you know what he's after, then join him in your prayers in that mission. We're asking according to God's will constantly through prayer. What did Jesus, everybody, everybody, the show has to stop. Everyone's looking at you. Just be still and be quiet. In prayer, when Jesus taught us prayer, it was a very simple thing. God the Father, have your way. You look at it in his prayers. Look for the prayers that are listed that are named. It's always evident that Jesus is praying for the Father to have his way. It's a personal rapport he has with his Father. It's a faith in God the Father and his plan. It's a desire for God the Father's objectives to go forward. And everyone sees you, and everyone sees it. It's visible. We see it. Do we need to have this out right now? Stop. The prayers of the Lord Jesus are prayers for the Father to have his way. And the prayers 
of Hezekiah here are for God to have his way in exalting his person, for God to be glorified, for the nations to know. This is why God put Israel among the nations, and this is what he's doing with us as believers in Christ today. Not that we've replaced Israel or the church has replaced Israel somehow, but that in the time in which we live, God's purpose is to make disciples of the nations by using you and me, the disciples of our Savior. And so we have a role. And so find a way to get your desires on board with God's mission, first of all. And then when you bring your petitions, remind God of this. I mean, he doesn't need you to, but you still need to do it. Father, save us so that the world will know that you alone, Lord, are God. And then we have an oracle from Isaiah, which we'll save for next time. If you turn over to 2 Kings chapter 18, 2 Kings 18, we have the ministry of King Hezekiah summarized. It's very interesting that the contents of chapters 29 and 30 of Second Chronicles are completely ignored. It's just that he tore down the, the high places and the idols. We were talking about Hezekiah as the iconoclast, the king that sets conditions by removing the idolatry in terms of the, um, the, the access people have to worship in the high places. So Hezekiah is summarized in verses 1 through 6, as we saw, and then the consequence is God's blessing in 7 and 8. But then the contrast couldn't be more stark in verses 9 through 12 of 2 Kings 18, the fall of Samaria, the northern kingdom. And I want to show you on the map what happened to them. These people are on the red dotted line. If you can see on the map, I know it's pretty small up there. But this red dotted line is, um, is indicative in this map of where the Assyrians would resettle the, the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes of the north, the, the two southern tribes being Judah and Benjamin, what's left of it after Judges. You have these ten tribes, these ten northern tribes that are taken out of the northern kingdom, out of headquartered in Samaria, and taken to be uh, deposited in this area here uh, where they were settled. Um, and I can't um, make out exactly the names, but this is the place in, um, in the Fertile Crescent. And this is, just so you recall, these two big rivers are the two rivers that Mesopotamia is the land between these two rivers. And um, so these eastern Semites are the empire builders, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. These are the western Semites, the people in Israel. And um, they are taken back along the Fertile Crescent to resettle in these other places. And then people from other countries that the Assyrians had captured are settled in the northern kingdom. There's this cross-hatching that happens. That was the Assyrian policy. It's to just completely disconnect people from their ancestral homelands and resettle them in new places and just scramble it up. And now you just belong to Assyria, I think is kind of the idea they had in, in uh, resettling people the way they did. It was a national policy. So they lost the land, and that's why later on, sorry, that's why later on in the times of Jesus, the people in the northern kingdom are called half-breeds because what, what remnant of Israel was left there, there were people left in the northern kingdom that weren't removed from their homes and resettled. Well, the other people that came in, they, crossed, they, crossed, they intermarried, and so you ended up with people that were partly of Jewish stock and people that but, but, but now Gentile. Uh, and some of them would follow the ways of Yahweh and some wouldn't. And you already had a big problem in the northern kingdom with borrowing Baalism and importing it into the faith that God had given Moses and uh, in, in his teaching. So you end up with this Samaritan problem. And that's why they'll walk around Samaria from Judea. They, they won't even talk to them because they're worse than Gentiles. They're mixed, they're half, and they're considered uh, the worst people in the world by the people in Judea. And so a lot of the interaction between the Judeans and the Samaritans, like in John 4 and the Good Samaritan parable, these things, this is even a bigger deal than you think because of what happened here um, with the Assyrians in 722 when, they, um, when God sent the Assyrians to finally destroy the northern kingdom. Why did God destroy the northern kingdom? Do you all remember? Why would he do such a thing to his beloved people? One word, was that to hear it? They're worshiping idols. The one thing, don't do, whatever you do, don't push that button. And there, Israel's like, 
oh, we got destroyed for it. That's, that's the story. <clears throat> we saw last week the, the appeasement that Hezekiah attempted before this visit from the Rabshaka, and then the delegation of Isaiah 36, which we read, and, um, and then the challenge, and then the effort for the um, Rabshaka to speak directly to the men of Judah. That's the end of chapter 36 in Isaiah. It's the same event in 2 Kings 18. And then the men don't say anything from the wall because they were under instructions from Hezekiah not to answer him anything. In 2 Kings 19, we have the recounting of what we just read where Hezekiah goes to Isaiah and asks a word, a prophecy from the Lord. And then we have Isaiah's encouraging message in uh, uh, 2 Kings 19, 6 and 7. Isaiah said, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you've heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I'll put a spirit in him. And so the two promises, they'll go back and then they'll fall by the sword in their own land. Rob Shaka's third message, which we just read in, uh, in Isaiah 37, don't believe your God. And then Hezekiah's prayer, which we also just read in 37. And now Isaiah's oracle concerning Assyria in chapter 20, or 19, verses 20 through 28, which is a, another poetic uh, statement. Now, why does God do it twice? Why do we have almost verbatim text to text? Because this happened. It was such a significant event. And you have multiple places where it's being recorded in the annals, in their records. It's kind of an appendix to this phase of Isaiah's ministry as it's included in the book of Isaiah. So you have God's promised deliverance. With the closing moments, though, I want to flash back one more time to why. Why did this work out this way? So you're in 2 Kings. I'm going to grab about um, half of a, a half inch and flip over to 2 Chronicles. Chapter 30. Now, just by way of just a little bit of reminder and historical flavor, who follows Hezekiah as the king? Who's his son who becomes king? Do you know the crown prince's name? Manasseh. Puh. Manasseh, the worst king in Judah's history. And born in that 15 years when Hezekiah asked God to save him from the cancer or whatever it was, he was saved, and then he had Manasseh and cursed the nation with the worst king they had. It matters who gets, who gets in power, I guess, is one of the lessons there. In chapter 29 of Second Chronicles, we saw a little bit last time how Hezekiah's ministry worked. I'll just read with you just a little bit as we close. In chapter 29, verse 1, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah. That's, that's my, my, God, my father is Yahweh is what that name means. The daughter of Zechariah. Yahweh remembers. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done, just like we read in 2 Kings 18. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them into the square on the east. And then he schooled the priests and the Levites and gave them explicit instructions about cleaning out the temple so that they can reestablish the worship of Yahweh in it. By the time you get, well, we're in verse 4 there. By the time you get to verse 6 in 2 Kings, we're talking about how he tore down all the idols. You don't hear about idols coming down in 2 Chronicles, which gives you a lot more detail about his ministry, until you get to chapter 31. Two full chapters, 29 and 30, describing Isaiah's return to the worship of God for the nation by restarting temple worship and, and having the first in a long time worship of God in Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
That's chapters 29 and 30. In verse, in verse 1 of chapter 31 of Second Chronicles, Now when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah, broke the pillars in pieces, cut down the ashram, and pulled down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin, as well as in Ephraim and Manasseh, until they had destroyed them all. Then all the sons of Israel returned to their cities, each to his own possession. This is presented rhetorically the way the writer in Second Chronicles presents it as the obvious follow-on national rank-and-file response to chapters 29 and 30. This is such a powerful moment for us as we think about how to proceed in this world, in this life. The devil has always been after the hearts of men through the messaging that they hear in the world we live in. Every culture has been bitten by the world's venom. Every culture has been infused in some way or another with this lie that God doesn't love you, he doesn't have the best for you, and if he is even there, you can't really trust his word. It's the constant echo through all cultures. And we have all kinds, of, I love the foods of the world, I love, I love culture. I like some of the music of various cultures of the world more than others, and I'm picky that way. But, but I, I love the richness of human expression experience. I love the richness of language. I love learning languages. I love undoing Babel, one, one, uh, one set of nouns and verbs at a time with various languages. It's a lot of fun. But whatever culture you go to, you find that the world is there. Satan's system of deception, lying about who God is, there's a cultural way that that's going on. And if everybody just kind of leans on the culture and walks with the rank and file, you'll be walking away from God. It's true in every civilization. Where ours is no different, and it really hasn't been. The, the strange instance in America, in our experience, was there was a overwhelming majority population of church-age believers founding a new country. This hadn't been done. It's an experiment, and we see, we, we see how it has gone. It was a beautiful thing. Some of it, I mean, if we think too hard about it, we'll, get, we'll start getting, uh, getting sick at what we've given up, what we've lost, and where things are going. But it is the tendency of the world because Jesus Christ is not building his political kingdom on earth at the present moment. He's not. This nation is not that. And we, we have to be careful about this. So what is he doing? He's making disciples of all the nations. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to free the earth from its corruption under its curse, according to Romans chapter 8, using you, the sons of God, and their revelation and our revelation on planet earth. Somehow this will free the earth from its corruption and its curse. And that's, the, that's when Jesus establishes his political kingdom on earth. It's coming. It is future. But it, it, what's so great is, yes, you have the vote and you need to use it. We have participation in government. We should, we should be involved. Absolutely. As, as much as you can for the Lord's glory and his purposes, trusting him, God, have your way, and I'll make my decisions for you wherever the chips fall. If all the statesmen, if all the Congress people would do that, it would be so wonderful. They won't. But if they would, it would be so wonderful. Wherever the chips fall, I'm going to do my decisions for you, for your glory, for your purposes, and I'm not going to compromise. But you don't have to worry about government, about the United States government or your local civil government to rule that which has been entrusted to you like Hezekiah did. You can apply the lessons of King Hezekiah in whatever garden you're tending. In fact, we must. And the lesson, the way I see it, as we summarize eight or nine chapters of the Old Testament. The lesson is, if we'll expose ourselves to God's word and we'll make that our priority and the worship of God according to his word, they had to be very well versed in all that God said in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy to do the reforms that Hezekiah brought about. If we'll make God's word the priority because we're worshiping God, if we'll make God the focus and seek him according to his word, then we have the positive thing (coughs) 
the, the, the standard that we're going for. <coughs> and now it's an obvious, <coughs> an obvious thing of what you would reject. You've, get, you've laid hold of the Passover. Pardon me. <coughs> you've gotten your, your finger back in the Bible and you're, you've removed the idols from the temple, first of all, and then you're back into the worship of God the way God has said. That's what he did. He removed the idols from the temple, they cleaned it out, and they reestablished the sacrifices, the burnt offering being the first one, the whole burnt offering in Leviticus being the, the, the consecration of the whole person to God. I represented in that animal and completely committed to God. Jesus Christ being the ultimate fulfillment who completely consecrated himself to the Father in our place. But that's, that's the idea. That's the picture of the whole burnt offering. You worship God as your focus, as your priority, having removed whatever the idols are. And then the rest of the condition setting is kind of obvious. You know what you need to do because you've embraced the genuine article. In other words, we don't have to become a bunch of uh, cult sniffers to figure out where all the errors are. We know what the real thing is, and there's no replacement. I'll leave you with an image that, very, that helped me a lot back when I was in seminary. Another movie was very popular in the early 2000s. It was called The Da Vinci Code. And it, it's the best shot they could do in two hours or two and a half hours of a Cliff Notes version of Dan Brown's blockbuster bestseller entitled The Da Vinci Code. And The Da Vinci Code was a fiction novel, a thriller, history kind of mystery thing that was trying to say that the Christians have missed it. The real original Christianity is Gnosticism. That's basically what they're saying. And if you really boil it down, what Dan Brown with his super secret spy professor guy that knows all the stuff that's telling you how it really is, what he really was able to argue was that the Worship of the act of marriage in the phallic cult, which is what Baalism and the, all the Greek stuff, they're all worshiping using the act of marriage in a perverted way called fornication. That that is the original Christianity. And that's what Dan Brown presented. If you really get all the trappings and all the clever devices of the plot out of the way and ask what is he saying, he's saying that the, the ideal from like the Gospel of Thomas, that man and man would become, the woman would become man in, in a union of the two, which is a portrait of the one flesh act of marriage, um, that that is the highest act of worship of the mother, the goddess, and the, and, and the consort God, this made up insanity. So you're replacing what we have in Ephesians 1 and all the spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're replacing all the riches of Christ with sex. That sounds pretty lame. It is. But that's what they're doing. That's, that was the offer. And how many people, I saw professionals, I was deployed when the book came out. All the officers around me are reading this. Oh, have you read this? They're all excited about it. They're not going to read the Bible, but they're going to read that. They didn't know that that was the game, that the shell game was replace all the riches in Christ for the worship of sex. But that was what was being offered. I had a professor, a guest, a guest speaker come and talk to us in Greek class as a pastor about how he used Greek in his ministry, and he showed us his translation work and his diagramming of sentences to do a Sunday sermon, and it was great. And he, he talked about how his sermon last week was on the, what the Da Vinci Code offers and why the Bible's so much better because it's, you know, he's teaching through Ephesians 1. And I thought it was a phenomenal uh, way to put it, that the offer of carnal pleasure, momentary carnal pleasure, is being presented as an adequate replacement for the victory we sang about earlier that we have a resurrected Christ who is going to allow us, equip us, strengthen us, and establish us to rule with him in his coming kingdom forever and ever. And, of course, that's insane. That's silly. But, see, 
the people that are taken in by these kinds of things, they don't have the first thing in place. They don't love God. They're not worshiping according to his word. They're not in his word. They're not serious. So the next interesting thing that comes along, oh, what, what can we sniff out about this? This is a new little thing. And they're, 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 licking, they're, they're licking the tops of cupcakes, and they're not actually getting into what we're doing, what the word of God says. And so it could be very helpful, I think, to, to see this pattern in uh, Israel's history. This event is recorded twice, really three times in the Old Testament because it's such a, 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 a shocking thing that God did. He stopped the steamroller. And he destroyed it outside the gates of Jerusalem because Hezekiah led the people to worship him according to the covenant. Father, we thank you for your word, for the challenge that it presents to us, for the walk by the Spirit. That is not the fulfillment of the lust of the flesh. In fact, if we walk by the Spirit, we cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh. We thank you that you have us in um, a challenging circumstance in this life free from the power of our sinful nature, yet dealing with its present temptation. Thank you that we have the new life. We have the new man in Christ and that we're commanded to put it on and that we don't do this in our own power. We do this as we avail ourselves of the assets you've given us in the Holy Spirit to abide in your son, to walk by your spirit, to be filled by him, saturated with your word. Father, it's our constant prayer that in our lives and those of our families and those in Preston City Bible Church, you'd have your good way so that we could be about your work and make disciples, give us wisdom to speak to those around us the truth of our Savior who died for them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.